Well, I tell you, after being out a Sunday and and then a midweek service, it's sure good to be with you this morning. It's sure good to see your faces and to hear you singing so heartily. And, and I pray today that your your being here will refresh you, be encouraged in your faith. And one of the ways we'll get to that is by taking our Bibles and turning to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to pick up right where we left off the last time we were here on the Lord's Day. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, I'll read through the end of verse 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is God's word. Now, before I pray, I want you to see a picture of one of our Sister, brother, congregations here in town, Bethany Baptist Church. This church is over 200 years old. Over 200 years old. They've been around for a while. They've been through some big peak times and some low times. But like us, they're meeting today, and the Word of God will be proclaimed there. And so I want us to just take a moment as we pray for ourselves that we would also pray for our brothers and sisters at Bethany Baptist. Heavenly Father, In a world that is so dark, with so much deception, we are thankful for your word that is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet. That which can speak to us and knows us to the very bottom. That which can feed our souls, give us instruction in righteousness, it can correct us. Teach us how to live for you. So, Lord, as it's open today at Bethany Baptist, whether it be in a Sunday school class or from the pulpit, as well as here in the children's classes, everywhere where your word is being proclaimed, may the Holy Spirit anoint the proclamation of the truth. And may we be lovers of the truth, not just believing. Not just believing, certainly no less than believing, but even more, loving your truth. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There was, there was an incident that took place in the life of Jesus that's recorded in the Gospel of John. The occasion was this. John the Baptist and two of his disciples were standing together one day. We're not told what they were doing, but they were standing together when Jesus suddenly walked by. John, looking at Jesus, speaking to his two disciples, said, Behold the Lamb of God. And and John tells us immediately these two disciples left John the Baptist and began to follow Jesus. They walked for a way, and then Jesus turned to them and asked them this question. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? 
Basically, Jesus was asking them, what do you want? What are you longing for? What are you seeking? As I pondered that this week, I remembered a man named Augustine. You'll see a picture of him. He's a theologian, philosopher who lived 354 to 430 A.D. Augustine had an incredible influence upon Christianity as we know it today. And he made a number of interesting observations that still stay with us today. For example, he said the essence of sin. You ever, you ever pondered what is sin? You know, if, you, if you could bore down to the very center, if you could bore down to the essence of it, Augustine said the essence of sin is disordered love disordered love. And what he means was we failed. As humanity, we failed to love God first and foremost. It's not that we just you know, didn't love him, that we failed to love him first and foremost. And as a result of that, as a result of our disordered love, it has led to disordered lives. You'll see his statement here, he's made a number of different statements that, that have stayed with us, but this one is very popular. You have made us, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Now that's something to chew on for a while, okay? But let's just notice something here. He doesn't say that our minds are restless. While that may be true, he said our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Now, why did he say it that way? Why did he say our heart is restless? It's because when the Bible speaks of the human heart, the human heart is the chamber of our love. When the Bible speaks of our heart, the heart is the chamber of our love. In other words, you can look inside, you can open up that chamber, that, that treasury, you can open it up, and in it you'll find desires, you'll find longings, affections. You see, what our heart most loves, our mind finds reasonable, our emotions find desirable, and our will finds doable. And so Jesus is asking these two disciples and us today, what do you love? What do you love? Because what occupies your thoughts, your words, your money, your activities is likely what you really love, not what you say you love. That's really what Augustine was saying. And that's what Jesus is asking. What are you seeking for? What are you longing for? What do you desire? Or fundamentally, what do you really love? And our passage this morning, the passage that we just read in 2 Thessalonians, is telling us, God is telling us in this passage, it really matters what you love. This passage is actually God saying to us, check your love. And before we do that, before we unpack this, Let's take a moment to review something, okay? Because we missed last Sunday. Let's just kind of connect what we've looked at in this letter so far with what we're going to look at today. For example, in verse 9, we just read verse 9, and it talks about the lawless one. Now, if you remember, 
the lawless one is the one that's mentioned in verse 3, the man of lawlessness, otherwise known as the Antichrist. Verse 7, we read last time we were together, the mystery of lawlessness. That's also known as the, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Paul said it's in the first century it was already at work. And it's the same thing we believe that John was speaking of when he said the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world right now. Think about it. That was in the first century. Imagine today in 2018. And while the full expression of this man of lawlessness was being restrained, according to verse 8 we looked at last time, we're told that he will ultimately be revealed and he will ultimately finally be killed by Jesus at his coming. But in verse 9, after learning about that in verse 8, after learning that he's ultimately going to be killed, Paul picks up again in verse 9 and begins to explain what must take place before the final great day of the Lord. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to unpack it this way. First, I'll say these verses, these verses are some of the most sobering verses as you'll see. They are, they are absolutely gripping. They are soul-gripping. If you listen to what is being said here in these verses, they, will, they should design to wake us up. So there's three things I want us to pay attention to as we unpack this. First, a great deception. We find in these verses a great deception. Secondly, a great refusal. And thirdly, a great delusion. So first, a great deception. Look at verse 9 with me. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. Now, what is Paul wanting us to understand there? When it says, in other words, when the man of lawlessness comes, what he does, his activity is going to be by the energy of Satan. The word activity there is the Greek word energia, which we get our English word energy. So what the man of lawlessness does is all being energized by Satan. This man of lawlessness is going to be a representative, a human representative of Satan here on this earth. I thought about this week, like how could maybe we just some little example that might help. I thought about a drone, you know. A drone is one of those unmanned aerial vehicles. There's, there's no one in the drone. Uh, it's all being controlled by someone else somewhere else, see. And so think about it this way. The man of lawlessness will be somewhat like a human drone in a way, in this way, being energized by Satan. Satan will be at the control of what the man of lawlessness will be doing. What will he be doing? Well, notice in verse 9, it said, with all power and false signs and wonders. Now, that word power is the word miracles. Notice that when the man of lawlessness comes, among, among what he will be doing, he will be performing miracles, signs, and wonders. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. What do we know about those words? Miracle, signs, and wonders. All three of those words are used of the activity of Jesus Christ. Same words. When Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, he performed miracles, signs, and wonders. When the man of lawlessness is revealed, he will do miracles, signs, 
and wonders. So what is the difference between Jesus doing them and the man of lawlessness doing them? Well, were Christ's miracles were befitting of one who came to save people, the man of lawlessness miracles are befitting of one who comes to deceive people. When Jesus came and did miracles, signs, and wonders, they called attention to who he was. They demonstrated that, yes, he was the Messiah. He was the promised one. He was the anointed, the Christ. And he come to save us. But when the man of lawlessness is revealed, his miracles, signs, and wonders are not designed to save. They're not designed to draw attention to Christ. They are designed to deceive. Notice in verse 10, with all wicked deception. And friends, these are not mere tricks. These will not be sleight of hand tricks. No, these are real miracles that lie about reality and lead people away from Christ. Notice in verse 10, and with all wicked deception. Now you ought to stop and just ask this question with me. Why would God allow this? Think about it for a moment. There are numerous cults and false religions in this world that do not lead people to Christ, but so often, in most occasions, lead people not to the righteousness of Jesus, but to works righteousness. False religions and cults that say, do this and do this and do this and climb your ladder to God, and then you will gain his approval, and you can have his salvation because you've earned it. Where there is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that bears the good news that God came down to us in the person of Christ and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so you want to ask, why does God allow these cults and false religions to thrive? I mean, why doesn't he come down and just do away with the Jehovah Witnesses? Do away with Islam. Get rid of it because it's deceptive. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not reality. It's not truth. Why doesn't God get rid of that? And why will he allow the man of lawlessness to come and do deceptive miracles, signs, and wonders and lead people astray? Why will God allow that? I think that Moses gives us the answer in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Look at this verse with me. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass... And if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Why does God allow cults and false religions and signs and wonders that are deceptive. Why does God allow that? Why didn't he step in and just say, not going to have this? Why does he allow it? To test and see whether we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You see, our faith 
I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Bible tells us this, that our faith is so precious to God, he is willing to allow this deception to see if we truly love him. So first, there is a great deception. And that calls for us to check your heart. Check your heart. What do you love? You see, we can attend church. Now listen to me closely. We can attend church and still have disordered loves. I was listening this week to a report that came out about pornography in the church. Of how many men, how many women are addicted, caught in the grips of pornography who attend church regularly. My brothers, my sisters, check your heart. The Spirit of God is speaking to us today through this text, looking at you, looking at me, saying, what do you love? And what do you love? Secondly, there's a great deception, but there's also a great refusal. Look at verse 10 with me, and you will see the target for this great deception that we just looked at is those who are perishing. I want you to stop and think with me, okay? What we're seeing here, okay, if you're paying attention, what you are seeing here is God is making a distinction. There are people in this world who are actively, presently perishing, while there are also those who are presently, actively being saved. And notice that there's no third category. You, sitting here today, you are either in the process of perishing spiritually or you are in the process of being saved. How are we to understand this kind of language when it says those who are perishing? What, what does that look like? Well, maybe this will help. Proverbs chapter 4, you'll see these verses. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Now, you, you see that imagery? The, the, the person who is walking in righteous paths, it's like, it's like, it's like the, 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 the sun comes up and you start walking toward the light and it gets brighter and brighter and brighter, you see, as you go. But notice it says the way of the wicked, or you could say it this way, the way of the perishing is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Now, what does that mean? Well, the darkness here represents self-deception. In other words, the more we follow, the more we follow this path, the path of perishing, okay, the more we follow this path, the more we live in denial. It sounds like this. Someone says to you, I'm really concerned about you. You are a very angry person. You seem you seem to always be simmering. And instead of you stopping and going, Oh my goodness, instead of you doing that, you go, I'm not saying, it's not anger, no. Uh -uh. I'm just a pretty intense person. Or someone says to you that loves you, I say, you know, you are so arrogant. And you go, I'm not arrogant. I just just know what I'm talking about. In other words, people who are perishing increase in self-deception and denial. They keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the darkness. That's one way of thinking about what's happening here in these verses. But another way is this. All right, especially for my young friends, because I think, I hope, I want to hope some of my older friends maybe maybe understand this, but for my younger friends, 
This is one of the challenges that you face. You grow up in church, and you want to follow Jesus. You, you, have, you have surrendered your life to Christ. You really want to walk with Jesus. And, you know, we, we've, you know, we've talked about this before, and we've told you, you know, there's the people you're going to work with and people out there who are not following Jesus, and they're, they're going down the deep, dark, dark path. And so you, you make friends with somebody, and you get acquainted with somebody, and, and you, you, you find out about them. You find out, hmm, they don't go to church, and they don't make any profession of faith, and they don't care anything about following Jesus, but they seem like awful nice people. I mean, in fact, I think she's nicer than some of the people at church. <laughs> Hello, are you hearing me? Uh, my, my, fr- my friend who were, they don't love Jesus at all, but they seem nicer than that one woman at church or that man at church or whoever it may be. And then you think, huh, it sure don't look like they're perishing. I mean, they don't love Jesus. They don't care anything about Jesus, but it doesn't look like they're perishing. So what do we do with that? Well, I th- I, maybe this will help. I don't know. Um, let's take this rose. When they sold this in the store, they, they had already cut it off from the vine, right? Now, this rose doesn't look like it's perishing. It, it, really, it really looks good. It smells good. It does not look like it's perishing. Inside the stem, I'm told that there are starches and sugar that remain in this stem that will energize it for one to two weeks. That's it. It'll be gone. It'll wither. It doesn't look like it's perishing, right? But we know it is. Why do we know it is? Because it's been cut off from its life source. It doesn't look like your friend, your friend doesn't look like they're perishing. Your friend without Christ, your friend who's going their own way, doesn't look like they're perishing. But according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, those who have been cut off, Those who are not connected to the vine, which is Christ, they have been cut off from their life source and they are in the process of perishing. That's what Paul is talking about here. Why? We've got to ask the question, why are people perishing? Why? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there's a number of passages I could look at for an example, but here I think is a classic answer. For the word of the cross, the message of the cross is folly, foolishness who, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice the distinction, those perishing, those being saved. What makes the difference? How you respond to the truth of the gospel. If you look at the gospel and it's foolishness, I got no time for this. I've got no time for this. I've got no desire for this. I'm not seeking this, not interested in this. That means you have refused to love the truth. Do you see that in verse 10? Those who are perishing because, they're perishing because they refused to love the truth and to be saved. They had no liking for it, no desire to possess it, no love for it. They refused it. It is the great ultimate refusal. They are separated from that which can save them, and therefore they are perishing because they refuse to love the truth of the gospel. Now listen very closely because I know some of you may be thinking, well, I don't have to worry about that because I love the truth. I love the truth. Let me ask you something very personal. Is the truth that you love 
a transforming truth? Because if it's not, it's not the truth of the gospel. Is the truth that you say you love a transforming truth? In other words, does it, is it changing you? Do you? As a result of loving the truth that you say you love, do you have new desires, Christ-honoring desires, or do you still have the same old desires, the same old life that you used to have before you said, I love the truth? See, the truth that you say you love may not be the truth of the gospel. If it's not transforming your life, check your loves. Check your loves. God is serious when he says, guard your heart. Christ is serious when he looks at us and says, what do you love? Because what you love really matters. It's a great deception, the great refusal, and oh my, we also see here the great delusion. We've already saw that Satan is at work energizing the man of lawlessness, but he's not the only one at work. Look at verse 11. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion. The word therefore, let's pause on that for just a moment. It, it means for this reason. When, you, when, you, when you're reading the scriptures and it has a therefore, it, it means for this reason. Well, what reason? What reason? We'll back up to verse 10. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, for this reason, God sends them a strong delusion. Okay? Now, first off, we want to say this. This sounds very surprising, doesn't it? I, I remember reading these verses. I've read them for years. And I'm no less surprised today than I was 30 years ago, 35 years ago, to read these verses. God sends them a strong delusion. Notice what it says next. So that they may believe what is false. That surprise you? That surprise you? What we're seeing here is this. There's a simple way of describing it. God is giving them over to the lie they have chosen and embraced. Kind of picture it like this. In a boat, like a canoe. And oh, I want to go this way. <laughs> I want to do this. God says, there you go. Shove the boat off the shore. There you go. God gives them over to what they have chosen and embraced. You see, the slippery slope begins in verse 12 when it says, who did not believe the truth. If you don't love the truth, you don't believe the truth, what? You have pleasure in unrighteousness. There is where it begins. The slippery slope begins with the pleasure in unrighteousness, which is otherwise known as disordered love for evil. We're right back to disordered love again. It matters what you love. And for these who Paul is speaking of, those who are perishing, it began because they had a disordered love for that which was evil and not for that which was righteous. Then they refused to love the truth and then it was followed by a judicial hardening where they embraced the lie of Satan's last great piece of deception. And then it's followed by the final condemnation from a just God in order that they all may be condemned. God is the judge of this universe, and he will always do right. And what we're seeing here is those who say, I don't want the truth, I'm not interested in the truth, I don't have any love of the truth, 
Don't care for that stuff. Going to go on my own way. God says, okay, go your own way. Go your own way. Embrace and follow after what you've chosen. And God puts his final stamp of condemnation. You can't be in any worse shape than to be condemned by God. So ponder that for a moment. Let me, let me, okay, if you're following me in a car, I'm getting ready to make a turn for home, okay? Just a few minutes, making a turn for home. And while we're making that turn for home, you're pondering and you ought to be thinking, hmm, I know what you're probably thinking. Let me, let me just say it. That sounds so unfair. That God would send a strong delusion that they would believe what's false. I thought God loved us. I thought God was loving. He is. He is, you'll see, just stick with me. God would send a strong delusion. They already, they've already you know, rejected the truth, and now God sends a strong delusion that they'll just fully embrace Satan's final great deception. Listen, before you begin to accuse God of unfairness, would you pause long enough to take a look at the heart of God and see what he has done to prevent you from perishing? First Peter, Second Peter, I should say. Second Peter chapter 3, look at these words with me. The Lord... Is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. If you could bore down, if you could bore down to the heart of God, you will not find a God who says, I don't care. I don't care. I can't wait to push the boat off the shore. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. Can't wait. Can't wait to condemn. Can't wait. No, you won't find that God. You will find a God who is not wishing that any should perish. But rather, all should come, all should reach repentance. Now, stop with me for there just a moment. Okay, he doesn't, he doesn't want us to perish. He's not willing. That's not what he's wishing for. He's wishing we would, we would come to repentance. What does that mean? A change of loves. A change of loves. I mean, that's fundamentally what repentance is. I mean, you can call it turning. You can call it turning from this way and turning to this way. You can call it all those things. That's right. That's correct. But fundamentally... It is a change of loves. See, the essence of sin is disordered love. We've set our love on this and this and this instead of setting it first and foremost upon God. And that's why we've got in the shape that we're in. God says, I don't want you to perish. It's not my wish. My real wish is that your love would be reordered. How does that happen? How has God, how has God worked in such a way to reorder your love and my love. How's he done that? You'll see a picture of um, the uh, space shuttle Columbia. I was reading about this the other day and found it fascinating. It was launched in 2003 in the month of January. And something unusual happened when it was launched. Some of you history buffs will remember a 20-inch piece of foam insulation weighing only two and a half pounds peeled off the orange external fuel tank and struck the left wing of the shuttle. And it appears that the foam fragment jarred some of the heat tiles loose that were crucial for keeping the spacecraft from burning up on reentry into the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, when, when this happened, when this happened, it created what they call a fatal flaw. Columbia was like a time bomb waiting to go off. I mean, that was, it, it didn't look like it was perishing. It didn't look like it, but it was. And it, it would take, listen, it would take an act of God. It would take an act of God to prevent the Columbia from perishing because it had a fatal flaw. But in this case, there was no act of God. Because in February 
February 1st, 2003, Columbia disintegrated upon re-entering Earth's atmosphere and it killed all seven crew members aboard. It had a fatal flaw and because of that fatal flaw, it was perishing. When I was reading this, the author said this, listen, in a similar way, when we were launched into this world at birth, we too have a fatal flaw, our sinful nature that dooms us to eternal destruction outside of an act of God. In other words, we, like Columbia, have a fatal flaw and we're perishing unless there's an act of God that takes place. And in our case, there was. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What has God done to reorder our disordered love that we might repent and change our love to first and foremost the living God? What has he done? He gave his son. He gave his son to heal mine and your fatal flaw. Yes, he did. To heal our fatal flaw. We were doomed. But God gave his son to heal our fatal flaw. God gave his son to be cut off. You remember, you remember the rose. Cut off, perishing. God gave his son that he, the perfect one, the sinless one, the righteous one, might be cut off so that we could be connected and reconciled to God. The very life source that we need to live and breathe and have eternal life. You see, when we, listen, when we behold God's love for us in Christ, our love is reordered. There's repentance. God has designed to change our disordered love. He gave his son. That's God's plan for reordering our love. Yes. And when we see God's love for us in Christ, we love him. That's why the scripture says we love because he first loved us. It's an embrace, a welcome, a love for the truth. And friend, it's not something, listen, because you may say, oh yeah, I did that back when I was 15 years old. Listen. Jesus looks at you today and says, what are you loving now? What are you loving today? I'm not talking down at the creek back in 83. I'm talking about 2018. Check your love. What do you love? What are you embracing? What are you welcoming? What do you love? Will you, let me ask you finally, will you love this truth?